Thanks for checking out the Vox Church podcast. We are so honored to have you join us, and we hope this message speaks to you in a powerful way. Learn more about Vox Church by visiting us online at voxchurch.org. Enjoy the message. Good morning, church. You look good today. Welcome to Vox. If you're new, my name is Justin. I'm the lead pastor here. We are streaming to all of our locations all across Connecticut and Massachusetts. Can we put our hands together in New Haven and say good morning to our church family? Welcome to Vox Church. So thankful you decided to join us. God has a word for you today. If you have a Bible, you can go to Mark chapter 2. If you don't, it will be on the screen when we read it. This is the text we're going to be looking at today. I'm so excited about what's coming up. October 20th, we start a new teaching series called Wake My Heart. Don't miss that. It's going to be awesome. And then the live recording tonight. I'm telling you, God is just doing some amazing things in our midst this fall. I'm excited to be a part of it with you. Mark chapter 2. Starting in verse 1, I'm going to read down to verse 12. You've probably heard this story before if you've read and much of the Bible, uh, a pretty famous story. But I believe that there is a powerful word from God for you in this text today. Starting in verse 1 of chapter 2, it says this, And when he, that's Jesus, returned to Capernaum, after some days it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. Don't you know that Jesus makes room when there's no more room? He makes room when there is no more room. So you might be here today and feel like there's no more room for you. God says from the beginning of the sermon today, he's making room. He's making room for you. So let's actually read the story. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed in which the paralytic lay. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus perceiving in his spirit what they, that they questioned within themselves said to them, why do you question these things? in your hearts, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk, but that you may know, somebody's going to leave knowing today, but that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed. And they glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. Come on, put your hands together for the word of God today. What a powerful story. I love this story. Life-changing story, some principles in this text that will change your life. If you want to jot some notes down, title of the sermon is Never Stuck Again. Never Stuck Again. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the power of your word, for a simple story written down 2,000 years ago that has the power to change our lives today. I thank you for every person that's walked in with their own story, their own challenges, their own victories, their own struggles. I thank you that today your spirit is present in the house. I pray that you meet us right where we are and that you speak the word of the Lord to each individual heart in a profound and personal way. In Jesus' name we pray. God's people said, amen, amen, amen. Never stuck again, never stuck again. I hate the feeling of being stuck I don't know the last time you felt stuck, but uh, I just hate that feeling, feeling like you can't go to the left, can't go to the right, can't go up, can't go down, can't go forward, can't go backwards. You feel like you're stuck. Just recently, I have had to confront my lack of ability 
in the area of mathematics because my oldest son has reached the seventh grade. And I can't do seventh grade math. And so he comes, he comes home every day. He says, Dad, I need some help with my homework. And those are like the dreaded words that I hear, you know? Like, you need some help, you know? And mom punched out after third grade. She was like, I'm done, you know, no more for me. I did good in fourth grade, fifth grade, sixth grade. But seventh grade, it has been my undoing. I mean, you know, some of the rules have changed in math. I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but like they changed math. I mean, I don't know when or how, but they did. There's no more textbooks. And so, and so he asked me a question. And I'm like, um... Well, let's Google it, you know, and so I'm, I'm like Googling different things and I'm calling friends. I'm not kidding. I've called three different friends in the last week and a half. And, uh, and you know, it's 10 minutes. It's only two problems, Dad. I'm only stuck on two problems. And then it's 20 minutes and then it's 30 minutes and then it's 45 and then it's an hour and a half. And like the frustration starts to build. And I feel like I don't know how to do this. You know, like I don't know how to compare constants of proportionality. Like I just don't even know what that means, you know. And, and it just the frustration starts to build. And, you know, don't tell my sons, but like I'm thinking in my mind, like you will never use this in your life, you know, like, <laughs> <laughs> Seventh grade math has been my undoing. Don't you hate that feeling? Feeling like you're stuck. I took my wife a week and a half ago into New York City and we, we got off an exit that wasn't our exit because the GPS told us that it would save us five minutes. Oh, never do that in New York City. Because I couldn't find my way back to the highway for 45 minutes and it cost me all kinds of time. I got stuck in this little traffic jam off the highway in New York. Don't you hate when you're late for something and you find yourself stuck and there's no exit to get off. There's no you know, way to fix it. You're just stuck there. Or you're in the grocery store and you look out and you see the three lines and you have to pick which one is worthy. You know, And so you're like, ah. Oh. And you choose this one. You're like, this is the one. I feel it in my spirit. The Lord has spoken. I'm going to get out quickly. And then you, know, you get in the line and the lady starts paying with pennies. You know? And it's like, it's like, no, no. And everybody else is flying through. And you, you, know, you have chosen unwisely. You know? It's like, no, I'm stuck here. But but there's three people behind you and you can't move now, you know? Oh, that feeling of being stuck. You might be here today, you feel stuck and it's something on the outside. Feel stuck in a job. You know, you went to school because your parents wanted you to get a degree in this particular field and now you're in this job and you don't like the job. You're stuck there. You've been stuck at this job maybe for weeks or months or even years and you don't know how to get out of it. You feel stuck in the physical, in a job or maybe you feel stuck in debt you know, you've racked up that debt and it's like, oh, I don't know how I'm ever going to get out of this. This is strangling me. You might be here today, you're battling with an illness and you thought that you would have been long past it by now, but you're still fighting with this situation physically. And it feels like it limits you. It's, it feels like you're stuck. You might be here and you're stuck in a crazy family. If you're sitting next to him, you don't have to look at them at this moment. But you know what I'm talking about and you feel like you're holding everything together because they're nuts. But you're just kind of like holding the whole thing, you know, and it's like if I just stopped doing this, the whole thing would implode. Everybody would be killing everybody else. And I'm stuck here. I'm stuck here. You might feel stuck in a relationship. These are exterior things, but they're critical. They're important. Or you might be here and you find yourself stuck on the inside battling with debilitating anxiety, not knowing why you're so afraid of what's next, but you're stuck. You've tried this, you've tried that, you've tried all sorts of things. It doesn't seem to be helping. You feel stuck on the inside with loneliness and you've tried relationships, you've tried to expand your horizons and it just doesn't seem to be working. You're more lonely than you've ever been. You know, there's something inside of all of us that hates it when we're stuck, that longs to break free. 
I think of George Bailey from the old movie, It's a Wonderful Life, where he's just stuck in Bedford Falls. And he's like, I just got to get out of this little town. For some of us on the inside, it feels like you're stuck in some little town. Others on the outside, it feels like you're stuck in some little town. But we hate this feeling. Maybe you heard the story of Aaron Ralston. It's become a well-known story now who years ago got stuck between two rocks while he was rock climbing in the wilderness in Utah. And he was stuck for five days, his arm between two boulders until he decided that there was literally nothing worse than being stuck. And so he took his dull pocket knife and cut his own arm off because he said, I'd rather be free without an arm than be stuck. You know, you were not designed by God to live a life stuck where you are right now. You were not designed by God to live a life limited and bound. You are called to advance. And so if you find yourself here today and you feel on the inside like you are stuck, listen to the word of the Lord today for you. Who the Son sets free is free indeed. The Spirit of the living God is here this morning to work in your life, North Campus, to work in your life, Middletown, to work in your life personally so that he can break you free from that sense of being stuck that has held you for so long. Mark chapter two, we hear the story of a man who's paralyzed, right? He's physically paralyzed. So he is stuck in the greatest sense. Now paralysis is generally the result of a disconnection, right? So the brain, the signal that the brain is sending to the feet is being disrupted because there's been a break. There's been a disconnection. And so oftentimes with paralysis, there's nothing inherently wrong with the man's legs or his feet or his knees, but they can't hear the signal from the head. And because they can't hear the signal from the head, they're not operating properly. They're stuck, right? And so imagine with me for a moment what it would be like to be a paralyzed man in first century Palestine. I mean, just think about it. There's no health insurance. There's no disability insurance. There's no hospital to go to. There's no wheelchair to sit in. Think about this man's life. It is a life that condemns him to poverty. It's a life that even the basics like taking a shower or dealing with going to the bathroom are physically impossible. So this man, he must have been bound in poverty, bound in in, uh, physical filth to the point where he'd be the type of guy that people ignored and avoided. I can't imagine the difficulty that he dealt with every day. And unlike some other people in the Bible that interact with Jesus, people like Zacchaeus or Bartimaeus or Lazarus, this man isn't given a name. I always think that's interesting. He's not given a name. He's just given a condition. He's called the paralytic, right? In other words, his condition has become all-consuming to the degree that his identity has now been swallowed by his issues, And so now his life has become one-dimensional. No longer does he have hobbies or purpose or focus or work or family or passion. Now it's just all, I'm the paralytic. It's not what I have, it's who I am. You might be sitting here today at one of our locations and right now your condition, whether it's physical or internal, has become so all-consuming that you don't even know your identity outside it that you feel like it has swallowed and consumed. It infiltrates every thought. It filters every feeling. Every aspect of who you are is a piece of this. And now it's your name. You say, Justin, I look in the mirror and I don't see myself. I see an addict. I look in the mirror. I don't see myself. I see a failure. I don't look in the mirror and see myself. I see someone who's been divorced. I see a liar. It's become the lens in which my life is viewed from. You know, with paralysis, 
that aspects of the physical body become numb, right? So whether it's fire or ice, the feet or the legs, if paralyzed, can't feel it. In the same way, many of us have grown numb to God, have grown numb to our friends, have grown numb to our family, have grown numb in our own hearts. So you might be here today, you can't even remember the last time you deeply felt something, the last time you deeply were passionate about something because paralysis has set in and now you can't seem to feel anymore. Something powerful happens to this man and that's where the story begins. It's an amazing truth, an incredible truth. Four of his friends pick him up, right? And they drag his paralyzed body through the town. Now imagine this with me. They drag his paralyzed body through the town. They get to the house where Jesus is. And the house is packed with people. And so they say, oh, no, it's too bad, man. We tried. Let's head home. No, that's not what they say. They think, I wonder how we can get in. And so they borrow somebody's ladder, probably, and climb up to the top of this roof of some unknown man's house, right? And so now they're on the roof of some guy's house, and they think, hey, did you bring that chainsaw? Yeah, 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 I brought it. And they, they cut a man-sized hole after developing a pulley system, and then they lower this man down, so they're like right at the feet of Jesus. I mean, what an amazing group of friends, right? This man could have never received, don't miss this, his miracle if it were not for his four friends. And there in lines a profound truth for your life, that there are blessings, there are miracles, there are supernatural gifts that God has for you, but you will never discover them until you surround yourself with some people who are willing to carry you even when you're dead and dying into the presence of Jesus. Wow, that's amazing. See, we have a misconception about faith in our time. We have believed that faith is an individual thing. It's a thing that's personalized. And though there is a very individual personalized element to faith, if you're ever gonna experience biblical faith, if you're gonna ever experience life-changing faith, it's actually a communal experience. Faith has a compounding nature to it. Scientists call this principle synergy in the natural. Synergy means that the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. So for example, in the physical world, if you took two pieces of wood, you nail those two pieces of wood together. They can hold more weight than the total held by each piece, right? If you take two horses and one horse can pull 8,000 pounds of cargo in its pulling, you take two of those horses, they can pull 24,000 pounds. In fact, if you train them together, they can pull 32,000 pounds. See, one plus one doesn't always equal two. That's why I've been struggling with math so much. One plus one sometimes equals three or four or 10. There is a synergistic component to this spiritual element of faith. And when one person's faith gets around another person's faith, gets around another person's faith, it doesn't just start to add, it starts to multiply. So there's such a power when you start to surround yourself with people who believe, with people who believe. And the faith of these friends, these four guys, it's dangerous faith. It's risky faith, it's daring faith. Dare I say it? It's aggressive, violent faith. I love how Jesus says it in Matthew chapter 11. Look at it. He says, from the time of John the baptizer until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing and forceful people have been seizing it. Do you know anything of that life? Do you have a passive faith that says, well, if God wants it to happen, 
Because these men didn't think that way. They said, we are going to get this boy in front of Jesus regardless of what it costs, regardless of what it takes. We're probably gonna get sued. We're probably gonna have some issues. We just cut a hole in a brother's roof that we don't even know, but we're believing God that he's gonna take care of that because we have got to get to Jesus. They had a radical faith. You remember the story of Jacob in the Old Testament? Maybe you're not familiar with it. He goes through all these trials and struggles, challenges, and then he gets to a point where he's at the end of himself and he faces God in the middle of the night and he wrestles with God. It's such a strange story because in the middle of the night, God says to Jacob, let me go. And Jacob says back to God, no, I will not let you go until you bless me. Now, in my mind, I would think God would just slap him and say, let me go and move on. But rather God says, oh, Okay, then I'm going to bless you. And he gives Jacob a new name. He does it because Jacob has this persistence. He has this contending. He's willing to sweat. He's willing to fight. He's willing to stand, stay, and believe. That's powerful. Those are the type of friends you need to find. Those are the type of friends that you need to begin to build. And it says that Jesus saw their faith. I love that because faith, of course, is invisible. It's an invisible component of the heart, but it has a manifestation in the physical. When you begin to act, it says he saw their faith. But this is crazy. Whose faith did he see? He didn't see the paralytic's faith. He saw the faith of the paralytic's friends, those four people who carried him there. And this is a powerful truth, an amazing truth. Your faith has the power to release your brother's miracle. Your faith has the power to release, and think of it in the opposite, your brother's faith has the power to release your miracle. See, God has caused us to live in such a dynamic that we need one another to experience his fullness. By the way, this is a shameless plug to sign up for community group, all right? If you have not yet at all of our locations signed up for a community group, what are you doing? Because those people need your faith and you need their faith. There needs to be a surrounding of individuals who one to another will carry each other to Jesus. And so if you're here today and you're not part of a community group, I just wanna urge you before you leave, visit the table at all of our locations and sign up, take a step. You're not signing for the next 36 years, okay? Just go try it once, all right? You can also host a group. Take, you know, an opportunity to lead right from your house. But this is so powerful, so important. Your faith has the power to release your brother's miracle. I love what Jesus says to the paralytic when he's finally at his feet. Look at it in verse five. I love this. And Jesus saw their faith. He said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. That is so weird. <laughs> that is like not what he came there to hear. Just imagine with me how disappointed the four friends who just brought their brother who is paralyzed, they need a healing, come to Jesus and he tells them, son, your sins are forgiven. I would imagine they probably watched their friend's life fall apart. You know, he became paralyzed, we don't know how, but when he did, he couldn't work anymore couldn't provide for his family. Maybe he lost his house. Maybe his kids were starving. He had a primary need. He said, I need a miracle. I need my legs. I need healing. And I could imagine they were thinking, Jesus, <laughs> thank you for the pious blessing. Not what we came here for. 
We need some legs. You have misinterpreted the primary need. I don't need a heartwarming prayer, Jesus. I need you to work a miracle in this man. I need him to be able to live again, to walk again. He needs his life back. I'm praying for legs. We came here for legs. We dropped him through the roof for legs. And you're talking about sins, right? I would imagine that those friends were like, what did he say? Did he say no, no. Does he not know? The man is, he, yeah, yeah. he's got an hello, right? Does he not see this? Have you ever found yourself in a situation where you are convinced, I'm talking to somebody, that you know your primary need, and when you pray, it feels like Jesus is talking from a completely different playbook. He's dealing with something absolutely different. You know, you lost your job and you're saying, God, I need a job. God, I need a job. God, I need a job. And you pray and pray and pray. And you hear the Spirit say, I'm teaching you patience. It's like, no, no, teach me employment. That's what I need, right? I find that oftentimes in my life, God seems to be working from a very different playbook than the one I'm working for. I'm praying and asking, believing and hoping for one thing. And he is redirecting my attention to another thing. And I love the way that he speaks to this man who lays before him. He says first, son, I love that. Son, that got his attention. It wasn't normal to call somebody son, especially when they're not your son. Son, what? What he was trying to say was, hey, 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 no, you're not some random person to me. You're not some unknown entity to me. Others may call you the paralytic, but I call you son. I call you son because I see you. I call you son because I know you. I call you son because to me, you're a part of my family. And I know you better than you know yourself. And you see your life through the lens of what you think you need. But I see your life through the lens of what you truly need. And I know that there is an eternity that changes the paradigm of an individual. And because I see from the lens of eternity, your life doesn't look the way it looks to you, the way it looks to me. I have a different set of priorities. And you think that these things are your biggest problem. These needs, these issues, these situations, these struggles, these fears, these doubts. You think these things are the biggest problem. But I know, says the Lord, your truly biggest problem. Your biggest problem is not your legs, son. Your biggest problem is your sin. Your sins. That's what you need to deal with. See, you and I suffer from a spiritual paralysis. A disconnection from the head. A disconnection from God. That has caused whole areas of our lives to go numb that has caused the internal gauges of our heart to malfunction. And you, I'm talking to you right now in the balcony at every one of our locations, you suffer from an unrelenting subconscious sense that you don't measure up. There is something inside of you since the day you can remember that has been trying to inwardly accuse and convince you that you do not measure up. And so you've spent your life trying to prove that you do. Spent your life trying to perform your way into confidence. Spent your life trying to construct an identity with a host of accomplishments. Spent your life wondering, insecure, and uncertain if you truly have 
what it takes. Now, some people deny this feeling of insecurity on the inside and say, no, 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 I'm beautiful, I'm unique, I'm special, but your heart doesn't believe it. You're not convinced of it. And so we start to move to blaming and we say, it's my parents' fault. They didn't love me enough. They were all messed up and that's why I have these insecurities. Or no, it's my friend's fault. They betrayed me. They turned their back on me. It's that person who broke my heart. It's their fault. No, it's society's fault. No, it's the system's fault. We find all types of people to blame. But each of us wrestles with what one theologian called the inner murmur of self-reproach. I don't have to convince you because you've heard that voice all your life. That accuser on the inside that tells you that you are not quite right. When it comes to God, there is always a subtle fear that you're not quite right with him. There's a scene in one of those Jason Bourne movies where Jason Bourne kills a guy with his bare hands. And after he kills the man, he goes to the bathroom, he starts washing his hands and he's got blood all over his hands, all over his shirt, all over his face. And he starts washing his hands, he starts washing his shirt. He's trying to get the blood out of his hands but it's soaked into his pores. And he's just washing and washing. After a few minutes, it becomes obvious that no matter how you know, he washes, how thoroughly, he's still got this blood staining his skin. In the same way, I know that there are many of us here that feel like you are stained. That feels like because of something you've done, oh, God's trying to get your heart right now. Because of something you did, because of a failure, because of something that was done to you, you've got this stain. You've got this stain on your soul. And that accuser keeps accusing you. You can't expect that from God. You, what happened last weekend? You can't believe that about yourself. You don't have what it takes. But the prophets spoke of one who would come and change the dynamic between you and God forever. And this is where so many of us struggle is we have not seen the degree in which Christ has the authority to speak the words that he speaks to the paralytic. See, Malachi talked about a, a man who would come as a savior and he would be like a refiner's fire, we're told. He would be like a fuller's soap. Isaiah spoke of a day when things would change between God and man, where things would shift in the relationship between divinity and humanity. Look what he said. He said, come now, let's settle this. I'm believing that today God wants to settle that guilt you've been dealing with, that today God wants to settle that shame that's been chasing you around. Today, God wants to settle that false identity of addiction that has bound your life. Today, God wants to settle that offense you've been holding against your dad. Today, God wants to settle Settle that fear and that shame that you have because your kid walked away. Today, God wants to settle that guilt that plagues you because of what you did and how you did it. Come, let's settle this, he says. Though your sins are like scarlet, I'll make them as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, I will make them as white as wool. Is that even possible? David says it like this. He says, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love to those who fear him as far as the east is from the west. So far. How far? That far. So far has he removed our transgressions from us. You have to understand, Jesus does care about your situation. He does care about your struggle. He heals the paralytic man a few verses later. But he says your greatest need, your most significant need, is that you need to, on the inside, have that connection with God completely and radically restored. And I imagine that if we could interview the paralytic man right now, after spending 2,000 years in eternity with Jesus, and we say, hey, what was that like? What was that experience like? I bet he would say, you know, 
At first, I came to Jesus because I needed a miracle. My physical body was a mess, and I needed God to break through. I had lost my home. My kids were starving. My whole life was falling apart. But when Jesus spoke those words, son, your sins are forgiven, at first I was disappointed. At first I didn't understand. But now looking back 2,000 years, having lived in eternity, having walked with Jesus forever with a body that does not decay or grow old, you know, I have to say that what I needed most was not a pair of legs. What I needed most was grace. And in experiencing grace, I found everything I ever truly needed. See, a right relationship with God is the most important thing in life. It's the most important thing in life. Amen. Interestingly enough, however, most of us, many of us, we spend so little attention on this issue of a right relationship with God. Don't live your life from a place of confidence that you're in a right relationship with God. You know, I've found that you can't get unstuck in the other areas of your life, whether it be your finances, your relationships, whether it be all kinds of circumstances where you find yourself stuck today, you can't get unstuck until you begin to rearrange your life around this one great priority, a relationship with God. Is the right relationship with God more important to you than your job? Is it more important to you than family? Is it more important to you than breathing? This is the profound and unique element of the follower of Christ that a right relationship with God has taken center stage and become the very center of our hearts, minds, and lives. See, I believe there are many of us here that you would say, Justin, I believe in a loving God. I, I believe in a God who loves me. But you don't live from the conviction that you are deeply loved. You don't live from the conviction that you are fully accepted that if you look back at your last week, the truth is you've been living like you're a half step out of sync with God. Like you're not completely confident that all these loving promises actually apply to you. That there's a degree of separation in your prayers. Come on, I'm talking to you. There's a degree of separation in your confidence because of what happened, because of what you did, because of I'm not sure what. But there's this sense, this lingering sense that maybe you're not quite right. There's something strange about this story. Something strange in that the story seems to break the basic rules of salvation. I don't know if you noticed. It seems to break one of the basic rules of salvation, which is, you know, in John chapter, uh, 1 John chapter 1 verse uh, 16, it says, or 19, it says, if you confess your sins, God's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness, right? So a basic rule of salvation in all the Bible is that if you want forgiveness, you need to confess. You need to repent. You need to turn from sin. That forgiveness is given to those who admit they're wrong and forsake that they're wrong. That Jesus forgives, but you've got to confess your sin. You've got to turn from sin. You've got to confess that you've done wrong, that you've admitted that you are not right with God, and then the mercy and grace of God comes to you. Interestingly enough, however, in this particular story, story. Jesus forgives the man, but in the text we see no evidence of his confession. We see no evidence that he admits that he's wrong. He makes no list of his sins. He does not promise to change. In fact, this man says absolutely nothing. Now, Jesus is not here trying to undermine the beautiful requirement and need for repentance, but rather is trying to reveal the essence and the nature of grace. That the grace of God 
by its nature is aggressive. The grace of God moves towards the individual, moves towards you before you've cleaned your act up. He doesn't wait for you to dot every I and cross every T. He moves towards you. Check this out. This man, his repentance is imperfect, inaccurate, incomplete. He doesn't check every box. He doesn't pray a perfect prayer. But Jesus looks and sees his soul. And Jesus is so eager to forgive him that before he can say a word. He says, son, your sins are all forgiven you. He decrees it. Oh, I pray that you would see it today. You remember the story of the prodigal son? Maybe you don't know the story. It's a story Jesus tells about God, the father in the story representing God, the sons in the story representing you and I. The youngest son leaves his father, lives his own way, his own life, and then comes to his senses. And he prepares a speech when he wants to come back to God. He says, all right, what am I going to say? What am I going to say? I'm going to say, I'm going to say, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me a hired hand. Just make me like one of your servants and receive me back into the home. Even though I won't be a son anymore, I'll be on. He prepares this whole ridiculous speech. And as he prepares to go back to his dad, the scripture says, while he is still a long way off. That's one of the most important phrases in the entire New Testament. While he was still a long way off, the father sees him, runs to him, seizes him, embraces him, and forgives him. The son never gets through his speech to justify himself. In the same way, you have to realize that you are still a long way off. There are sins you've committed you don't even know about. There are dumb things you're still thinking that God needs to rearrange in your mind, and you have not even realized them yet, but God is not waiting for your perfect repentance, for your accurate confession. He just needs you to turn, and if you will turn, he will see you, run to you, embrace you, accept you, wash you, forgive you, renew you, and restore you. Come on, wake up. He wants to get your heart today. He wants to get your soul today. He wants to show you that the distance that you've created between you and him is not necessary. In fact, he paid a high price to remove it, and it does him no glory and you no good for you to maintain it. In Colossians chapter 2, it says this about your condition. When you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. Having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. See, on the cross, Jesus Christ absorbed your sin and exchanged places with you in such a profound and personal way that now you stand before God in the righteousness of Jesus himself. It says he forgave us all. I love that word all. <laughs> My conscience has needed that word all more times than I can remember. Because it means your past sins. It means, this will blow your mind, your future sins. It means the sins you don't even know you committed. It means the moment that you are most ashamed of in your life. It means all. Notice there are no conditions placed on the forgiveness. It's not if you do it just right. It's not if you accurately say it all. It's not if you keep a perfect record or if you promise to never, ever, ever do anything wrong ever again. It just says all. It says all. What an offensively glorious truth that Jesus Christ has already forgiven all your sins. See, you might think you need a new job, you need a spouse, you need a physical healing, and you do, 
and God cares. But what you need more than anything to get unstuck, what you need more than anything is the deep and profound revelation that, son, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Your sins. And this, oh, I pray you'd see it. This is the real secret of the body of Christ. The body of Christ. See, it's a picture, the body of Christ. See, the head is Christ himself. The body is you and I. And so the foot and the leg and the knee and the arm and the hand. And when one piece of the body restores connection, it begins to feel again. It begins to move again. When you start to hear the message from the head that your sins are forgiven, the message from the head that you're actually loved, the message from the head that you don't need to try to earn favor before God because favor has been bestowed upon you by faith in Christ. When the message starts to get through and the connection is restored, then dead things start to come alive. Numb things start to feel again. Things that haven't been able to move begin to move. And then one leg is alive. And then two are alive, interconnected one to another, an arm, an elbow, a knee, a finger and before you know it the body of Christ one faith feeding off another faith feeding off another faith begins to move and run and accomplish the impossible because the whole body fitted together through what every joint supplies has life flowing through it come on somebody this is the power imagine what could happen if every one of us in the room actually heard from the head, Christ himself, deep in our bones that we were loved, accepted, forgiven by God? When that truth gets in, there's no more paralysis. There's no more numbness. And Mark chapter 2, verse 12 doesn't just become the picture of one paralyzed man, but it becomes the picture of your life, the picture of our collective story. Look at it with me again because I believe this is true for you as you hear him speak. And he rose. Some of us today need to rise. Rise out of your anxiety. Rise out of your insecurity. Rise out of the shame that's held you back. Rise out of the condemnation for the mistake you made five years ago. Rise out of the brokenness of that divorce. Rise out of the fear that has held you in the past. Today he rose, he rose and immediately picked up his bed. See, sometimes God meets us with an immediately. And my prayer for you today is that today is your immediately. I thank God for process. I thank God for over the course of time. But today the Lord has an immediately for you. He rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed. See, his life became a sign and a wonder and they glorified God so that your life now points to his life which does displays the life of Christ, saying we never saw anything like this. I want to prophesy to Vox Church that God is raising up a people who have been changed by grace so perfectly and profoundly that a watching world looks and says, what is going on in that crazy church? We never saw anything like this. <laughs> I know that guy. He's not like that. He doesn't smile. He's smiling now. I know that family. They're all dysfunctional. They're functional now. What's going on? I know that guy. He's a Scrooge. He's, he's generous now. <laughs> I know that marriage. It's a mess. It's built on kindness now. I never saw anything like this. 
I've got a word for you today. And the word is that you don't have to stay stuck. You don't have to stay stuck. You don't have to stay stuck in that anxiety. You don't have to stay stuck in that cycle. You don't have to stay stuck in that fear. You don't have to stay stuck in your past. Everything comes alive when you accept the truth about how God feels. About how God feels. Come on, would you stand to your feet at all of our locations? We're going to pray. Right here, right now. Stand up to your feet. Would you bow your head? Would you close your eyes? I believe that today is a day of encounter with the living God. The spirit of Jesus is in the room today. Right now in Middletown and in Hartford. Right here in New Haven, and North Campus and Bridgeport. The spirit of the living God is here right now. He knew you'd come. He knew before you knew. He planned your steps. He ordained your path. Maybe you didn't plan on it. He planned on it. Maybe it feels random and circumstantial to you. No, no, no. It was purposeful and intentional that you could hear this word and get set free. He said, Justin, I've been following Christ for 20 years. I know all there is to know about Jesus. And yet you still live a half step outside of confidence. And yet you still live with that aching inner murmur of self-reproach that keeps you from a place of sureness and certainty when you pray. Today, God wants to rip that Band-Aid right off. Today, God wants to remove the bullet from inside the wound. Today, God wants to do a profound, personal, supernatural work in your heart. He wants to give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him so that you could have an encounter with grace that leaves you changed now. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, spirit of the living God, I'm asking you in the name of Jesus to accomplish today what is impossible in man, but possible with God. I'm asking you even now, Lord, to go into the recesses of our hearts, into those places of shame, condemnation, and insecurity, into those broken places where we feel like we should never be forgiven, where we feel like we're out of step with heaven. And I pray that the profound truth of your love would penetrate even into those places. I pray in the name of Jesus that the blood of Christ would begin to wash our conscience in such a way that a new confidence would rise up, that a new certainty would explode and birth forth that we would have now an encounter with your love that would change us from this day forward, that we would realize that there is a God who really is that good and there is a gospel that really is that great. Spirit of the living God, would you breathe today in every heart, in every circumstance, in every lie, bring truth. I speak your life in Jesus' mighty name. Fox Church seeks to reach New England and beyond with the life-transforming message of Jesus. If you have been impacted by this message or the ministry of Vox Church, you can continue to help us reach others by giving today at voxchurch.org forward slash give. For more information on how to get involved, visit us online or on any social media platform at vox.church. We always appreciate you taking the time to rate or review this message on iTunes. Thanks again for listening to the Vox Church podcast.